the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we are to this is just such a treat. A best friend I've never met until about eight minutes ago in person. Our dear friend, my dear friend, yours, Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. You, you insert that word graduate now to break up the alliteration. I, I, I kind of noticed that. <laughs> Pete, welcome to Phoenix. Seth, I always say it's great to be with you, but now I'm now actually is. with you. Yeah, so it's, now it words really mean is things. such a blessing. It's so good to see you. You're you even too. better looking in person than on your picture. <laughs> <laughs> don't want people to get the wrong idea. <laughs> You're an old ska musician. I lost control of the show in the last hour with people calling in with bands, names I'd never heard. T-Rex, Oasis. Do oh, these yeah. things mean anything oh, to you? Oh, for okay. sure. T-Rex a little bit. I, I know Oasis. Better. Supposedly, one of them sued the other over a "Bang a Gong," uh, "Get It On," "Bang a Gong" song, which I think Bruce Willis covered at one point. Yeah. But anyway, welcome, welcome, welcome. So good to be here. So much to talk to you about. Yeah. Uh, two things, um, kind of passionately, are interestingly related. Um, but of course, we commemorated the anniversary of nine yeah. eleven earlier in the week, and next week we're doing a big commemoration and celebration of Constitution Day. And you're doing a big thing with Constitution. Do you want to tell us about what you're doing for Constitution Yeah, well, we actually celebrated it just because of the way that the Jewish High Holy Day calendar works uh, last Wednesday on our campus and welcomed back to Malibu uh, our friends from Yeshiva University uh, in New York. Uh, They have a particular institute there called the Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. And if you read the mission of the center, it's really so deeply aligned with who we are at the policy school in uh, teaching and discussing Western Civ and why it matters to today and preparing that next generation of civic leaders. So we had four of their scholars uh, come speak on campus on Wednesday, and the theme of the four talks was the Hebrew Bible's impact on America. And really, in each different lecture, uh, we just posted them up online on uh, the School of Public Policy's YouTube page. Just um, amazing perspectives, stories, uh, even stories about the Liberty Bell that Rabbi Dr. Meyer Soloveitchik told, uh, that it has an Old Testament passage on the inside of it. Um, Just really just so many deep connections in Old Testament uh, scripture and imagery on America's founders, and really just such a deep connection on the Judeo and Christian side of our roots. I can watch it all on YouTube this yeah. weekend? Yeah. Well, now you've given me my weekend. This sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a partnership with what Yeshiva University, or are you just Yeah, scholars? it's informal, uh-huh. but I, again, just so mission-aligned. This is the third event that we've done with them. The first time uh, was back just before COVID hit in 2019. We had a couple of their scholars to, uh, come out to uh, talk about some similar uh, issues at, around the American founding and the connection to uh, the Old Testament. But uh, earlier this year, I went out to New York mm-hmm. and partnered with them on an event around civics education uh, and a group of high school teachers uh, that we had all brought together uh, to learn again about these really 
foundational arguments, images, uh, again, that Judeo and Christian part of our founding. So interesting. In the previous hour, I had a caller who was talking to us about history education, American history education, America, and I'll return to that. I'll put a tie into 9-11. Sad but uh, memorable story to me. Uh, I knew Barbara Olson Mm. in Washington, D.C., who's— who died in the plane that went into, of course, crashed into uh, the Pentagon. And uh, I was talking to her one day, and um, I didn't know it was, I think it was before the internet, well, the days before Google was used the way Google was used, and I asked her where she went to law school. Cardozo, which Mm. is the Yeshiva University Law School. I said, Barbara Olson. Come on. You look as white as Pete Peterson. I could I would have said that. I would have said that. I said, Barbara. Really? She goes, Yeah, I stood out a little bit. Yeah. I said, Really? Do you have any funny stories? She goes, Yes, there is one. She's in the newsletter there was a really oddly strongly anti uh anti Israel piece that was published, if you can believe it or not. And I went up to the dean saying, you've got to say something from on high here. We can't stand this at Cardozo. And the dean said to me, what we, Kimosabi? <laughs> yeah. Oh, but may she rest in peace, says yeah. all those souls to almost 3,000 souls. You guys had a, had a, had a flag planting at Pepperdine. We did. It's, it's actually become a major event in that Southern California, Los Angeles region. Yeah. We call it the Waves of Flags. And uh, we go through a process about 10 days out from uh, 9-11 to plant almost the 3,000 flags, each one commemorating a life lost. And unique in our display is uh, we actually plant the flag from the country from where uh, the person uh, who was killed Mm. uh, lived. Mm. And so obviously – the vast majority, 95, 96% of the flags are American flags. But every once in a while, you'll see flags from other countries just to show how many families and, and countries were touched on that day. And you, your whole life was changed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was in New York on that day, and I, it's fair to say that that was a, a watershed moment for me. I uh, was working in the private sector, working in an ad agency at 38th Street and 8th Avenue, uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, we were all evacuated out of the building that I was working in, uh, was commuting in from New Jersey at the time, and uh, all the bridges and tunnels had been closed. Yep. And so it was one of those uh, times where we were. I was just kind of walking around the city. I had a dear friend of mine who, even to this day, is, works in the DA's office for the city of New York. He was actually working out of their Staten Island office, and he, too, had been— uh, you know, he wasn't able to come back to Manhattan because all the ferry services had been shut down. And so I managed to get through to him and just say, it, it would it be okay to crash at your apartment for the day or at least the next few hours? And he was obviously very gracious in saying that I could. And so I made the trek from 38th and 8th to uh, 89th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue to his apartment. And uh, just that was a, a day, of course, I'll... I'll never forget and really changed the way I looked at my own life and and the lives of so many, as and you theologically know. Theologically, too, right? You, yeah, I mean, you it turned just, your life over in many respects, didn't well, you? Well, and, and especially, I'd come to faith in my mid 20s. I was 34 when 9 11 happened. But I have to say that what 9 11 did for me, and it all happened in, the, in that day, on that day, was made me think about what I was doing with my professional life. 
Um, it, I can only describe it as this feeling that welled up in me that uh, where I, I thought to myself, if I had another 30 years of a career, I, I just couldn't do keep doing what I was doing. Yeah. And it was really on that day, which led to a number of other uh, days that I began to explore this subject, which is known as calling, which has a secular origin to it, but certainly a faith-based one as well, in which I began to think about calling and vocation and what that meant to me. And for me, uh, and again, we both know people. I know friends that went into the military afterwards and others that went into uh, intelligence agencies and others that got involved in politics and policy in different ways. For me, it meant first going back to school, uh, back to get my master's in public policy at Pepperdine. And uh, and obviously so much of my life has has really changed uh, since that day. Yeah, it changed a lot of lives, uh, so, uh, and I think forever. I, I had another friend of yours on uh, about three days ago. Well, I had him on September 12th, so that would have been Tuesday, uh, who has also taught at Pepperdine. I had Bill McClay on. Oh, yeah. And we talked for about an hour. Mm. Um, you may recall he wrote a piece in 2011 uh, for— national affairs on what to remember well i guess it would have been the week we sent it now whatever uh, it was a big important piece on what to remember about 9 11 and 20 and and he wrote that you know a little over a decade ago and i i remember i couldn't believe it's been a decade i can't believe yeah. it's been 22 years i can't either i can't either. and the thing is we we got into are we remembering the right things mm. uh funny thing that people lament that the unity that existed right after 9-11 was short-lived. It was a few months, not much more than a few months before things got tremendously political again. Mm -hmm. But people remember that there was unity and that we lost Mm -hmm. unity. But I don't know if they remember everything that needs to be remembered about 9-11 and what caused the unity in the first place. Mm -hmm. He made the point, McClay did, Professor McClay made the point that, you know, we used to see the imagery, the shocking, obviously shocking imagery of the of the planes going in, right. he said, but but we really forget what the meaning of the attack was and what the meaning of the response was, mm. and now we don't even have the imagery anymore. Yeah. And there's something really tragic about American memory, and I'm going to go into a break. I wonder if we might talk a little bit about memory, and it gets to Constitution Day as well. Elie Wiesel said... Um, Memory is at the heart of redemption just as forgetfulness is at the heart of exile. And I mm. worry we're tilting a little as a country too further into the latter. Pete Peterson, can we address this? Absolutely. We Got a Pete great Peterson, story to tell. Oh, good, 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 good. Pete Peterson, dean of the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. You like that? Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is my guest. He's the dean at the uh, Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu with all the troubles we talk about in higher ed. Uh, Pete's got an institution that is the answer and a great response. And if you're interested in a career in public policy, which I hope you are, I want you to check out the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We play a lot of trumpet music on this show, Pete. That was Al Hurt doing the theme to the Green Hornet. Mm. And I didn't know this, but young David over there told me on the Green Hornet, Cato was played... By who, David? Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. He knew it. I know. He know. Well, he's the dean of a big, important school, and I'm, you know, it's the proximity to Hollywood. Oh, is that what it is? I'm just a pedophagger over here. Uh, 
Pete, we were talking about Constitution Day, 9-11, and these yeah. kinds of issues of history, teaching, and memory. And uh, I, 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 I quoted Bill McClay's words to him from the introduction. I'm going to quote him to you when I discussed him, discussed the issue of 9-11 and memory with him. He writes, For the human animal, meaning is not a luxury, it is a necessity. Without it, we perish. Historical consciousness is to civilized society what memory is to an individual identity. Without memory and without the stories by which our memories are carried forward, we cannot say who or what we are. Without them, our life and thought dissolve into a meaningless, unrelated rush of events. Don't you think we live in a world of meaningless, unrelated rushes of events, what we sometimes call the crisis industrial complex around here? Yeah, I totally agree. But we don't count the cost, right? I mean, obviously, we're doing that right now. And there are moments like anniversaries, like 9-11, that cause us to link back. I mean, so much of, you hear so many of the questions around 9-11, where were you, right? And it's it's a way, that question in and of itself is a way of understanding the power of moments and memory, mm-hmm. right? That you and I, and I'm sure many of your listeners, can answer that question in a heartbeat to be able to say just immediately where they were when they saw the news, when the images came up on the television screen. And and that experience just goes to the point that Bill is making about the power of memory. Yeah. And then, but as you also rightly say, we're also living in a world where so many of the things that are coming at us on a almost minute by minute basis are seeking to always draw our attention to the immediate mm-hmm. uh, without getting a chance to step back and have some context. But we have to know as human beings that we are driven by memory and connection and affiliation and those kinds of moments are just just raw human moments and to count the cost as we are that in this day of social media and uh you know that crisis industrial complex very well put that uh that that is working counter to these very uh elements of what makes us human you know what's interesting is is as you were responding to that line uh that quote of Wilfred McClay's uh, meaning, uh, meaningless, unrelated rush of events. It seems to me, and don't let me say what isn't true, but it seems to me that might have been your life up until 9-11, mm. or at least you reflected on 9-11 that you were living a life of an unrelated rush of events and you wanted to do something with meaning or more meaningful, if you will. Yeah, I think kind that's... Kind of an ironic thing. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think that certainly on the professional side, I was just kind of doing the next thing that came along, and 9-11... And I remember the moment when that feeling first hit me. I was standing in the middle of Central Park. This was probably around 2 or three, 2.30 in the afternoon. As we all remember, even if you weren't there in New York, it was just a crisp, clean, yeah. beautiful late summer day. Yeah. Uh, crystal clear blue skies. If you looked uptown, it looked like just another beautiful day in Central Park. But as soon as you looked downtown, you saw this blackish brown pall of smoke coming out of what used to be the Twin Towers. And that experience was very much for me one of saying, what are you spending your life doing? And and again, from a professional standpoint, just asking those deeper questions, which uh, with, my, with my wonderful wife's encouragement uh, led to making some decisions that to some people didn't make a lot of sense. Going back to graduate school in my late 30s did not make a lot of sense to people. But for me, uh, begun with those experiences on 9-11, it made 
total sense. Such an iron a day of irony itself too. I was reminding the audience. Um, it was a beautiful day. I, I remember in Washington D.C. the weather mm-hmm. would have been similar. Mm-hmm. Um, in the New York Times that day, September 11th, 2001, obviously printed before the uh, mm-hmm. the attack. There was this headline of a story. You may remember this. Here's the headline. No regrets for a love of explosives. A war protester talks of life with the weathermen. Quote, I don't regret setting bombs, Bill Ayers said. I feel we didn't do enough. Close wow. quote. That wow. story was in the New York Times on I don't regret setting bombs. I feel we didn't do enough. Wow. Just another irony of, yeah. the way, of, of the way things go. You know, it, you talk – people t- forget, too – there, 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 this didn't exist. The, I, the iPhones were not. I mean, oh, we, yeah. we, we were worried about a holiday from history then and being an unserious country with all kinds of distractions. I think that's Krauthammer's term. We were living in a holiday through history. Yeah. We, were, we were worried then that we weren't being a serious country. Yeah. Four years after 9-11, we get the smartphone. And uh, boy, what it's done to our society and to our ability to memorize or want to memorize or take moments of repose and calm and study and be serious. Yeah. It's ruined that, again, all over at a probably new level of speed. I think that's so right. And just to think if we had smartphones back then. Right. Uh, and as you and I have talked about many times on, on this show, it has an increasing negative impact the younger that we go. Mm-hmm into this next generation. And as so many of us can remember where we were on that day, you wonder if that ability to yep. recall is is gradually fading uh, in this next generation for reasons that uh, are, are very important, again, as, as Dr. McClay outlines, uh, to take stock of. Yeah, I remember, I don't know, you had this growing up, uh, I remember my parents limited my television watching because mm-hmm. they were worried about what TV was doing. Right. And that was not a new concern then. Newton Minow gave the Great Wasteland speech in the 60s about what television was doing. And uh, But I, re- I think I was allowed something like an hour a week on mm. television. I think they were pretty strict. Yeah. An hour a week. And I think I... I used it for the $6 million man. I, mean. I think that's what I used <laughs> That's it where you cashed it I, in. I think that's where I cashed it in. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, um, but, you know, to worry about television as parents, responsible parents did now, this really is a whole new thing. This well, is a whole new thing, the kinds of stuff that Haidt and others are writing about. Right? But even to compare television today right. to back then, yeah, sure. where you were really seriously controlled by a certain small set of right. channels right. and certain uh, shows that were winning you know, 30, 40, 50 million viewers, Americans. I mean, the, the, the television also became, in some ways, kind of a, a common culture-shaping yes. Uh, platform yes. in ways that if you look at television today with streaming services and how much we can control about what we see and what we have access to uh, and dwindling audiences for specific shows, it really is uh, even just comparing television, I think, is important to this question. And those local channels, I don't know if it was true where you were growing up here, the local channels, the CBS, ABC and uh, NBC affiliates had biblical quotes yep. at the end of the day and the Star-Spangled Banner yes. when they signed off at yeah, it night. Did. And it actually signed too. off. Yeah, and they signed <laughs> off. That's right. They did That's give right. us repose. That's right. You can't sign off. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Did we talk about Jimmy Buffett since his passing? We haven't. Did we uh, yeah. want to make sure we'll give him his due at some point, yeah. too. Pete Peterson is my guest. He's the dean at the graduate school, Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Great, 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 great organization. And I want everyone to watch those YouTubes as well of his Constitution Day commemoration that uh, they did last week as a precursion of what's going to be taking place next week. You wanted to make a point, Pete, about what we remember and Constitution Day. Yeah, that there was obviously tons of memories that we all have of 9-11. For me, the one that really jumps out was uh, right around noon, I had mentioned I crashed at a buddy's place uh, there at 89th Street between 2nd and 3rd, was watching television nonstop, just seeing all the videos that we all saw that day, and seemingly out of the blue, I heard a uh, jet plane flying. And as we all know, all the plane, all the flights were grounded that day soon after what happened. And so planes fly over New York all the time. So there would be no other reason to be taken surprised by it. But I obviously was at that point in the day. And I looked out to see what the plane was because it was obviously flying very close. It was a very loud jet noise. And it was an F-16. It was an F-16 that was flying around Manhattan, and <clears throat> within a second, I realized it was there to shoot down something that may uh, – the next passenger jet that might we be had coming. no idea. And that, that moment where you start the day a certain way and you get to a place where we're flying Air Force jets around the island of Manhattan in order to shoot down – American passenger jets, Mm -hmm. it -hmm. it just showed how tenuous Mm -hmm. (laughs) life is. Mm -hmm. And these issues around Constitution Day and our form of government and the decisions that had to get made by people to say, let's get the jets up uh, and we may have to take American lives in order to save other American lives. That's where we were like that. That was the story of Flight 93. Right. Right. There was a call where one of the people on the plane left a message for his wife. We're waiting to get over a clear path, a clear area because we're going to do something. Think of that mindset. Mm. So they knew those passengers. They they knew that if they were successful, that plane was going down. Yep. They knew if they weren't successful, that plane was going down. Right. The difference between a good end and a bad end, a good reason. And a bad reason. They knew if they were successful, they would take that plane down in the service of saving more lives. And they knew if they were unsuccessful in taking it down, it would go down in the service of taking more, more lives. lives. That's right. And that really was such the balance and valence of good and evil and right and wrong that a lot of us thought would have a lasting impression as putting kind of a pin in the balloon of relativism, which had so grown as as such the philosophical and intellectual um, dominating force that it was in those days. And uh, it did for about a week, maybe a couple months, but it didn't last. Mm. It didn't last. We sank back into it pretty quickly. Mm. We did. And I, I again, I think I give a lot of talks on political culture and where we are in the world. And obviously things are so polarized now and can be very depressing to go through all the the survey data that shows Americans are more torn yep. than they've been since the 1960s. But that's a moment that we can at least refer back to to say it's 
It hasn't always been like for this. For one brief shining moment. For one brief shining moment. But it, but even in that, as as brief as it was, it does show that there is something in the American psyche that seeks affiliation. There is an element of the American political psyche that seeks the unum out of the pluribus. And, and we saw it there. And rather than just dismiss that as, well, that just happened because of a particular tragic event, I think we would, we would better spend our time understanding and realizing that that did happen and we're capable of that again. And what is lost when we are continually running toward the pluribus instead of the unum? Carl Rove had a piece a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, you may remember, talking about the yeah. divisions between the 60s and now. And I wonder on that very point if we might come back on it, because I have probably a more pessimistic view of our capacity for self-renewal. Mm. Um, and anyway, it'd be fun to explore it with yeah. you on the other side of this break. Pete Peterson is my guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm going to go give him a tour of my desk, a tour of the delights that constitute the being of Seth Liebson on the break, and he and I will be right back. <laughs> well, welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to have Pete Peterson in studio with us. He is the dean at the Pepperdine Graduate, Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. And uh, we've got to teach you the ways, the mores and customs of Phoenix, Pete. He's in a beautifully uh, gray suit, looks like uh, Cary Grant in North by Northwest, and we just don't dress like that around here, sir. <laughs> we just don't do that. Well, we don't often do it in Malibu either, I have to say. But this conference, everybody is uh, is dressed to the nines. Okay. So I'm just trying to keep up. You're just trying to keep up. Okay, wonderful. It. Well, it's, it's a delight to have you. We were talking about um, America, her memory, her capacity for self-renewal. You're identifying 912 mm. at SEC as an... Proof, as proof, the theoretical uh, being proven by the actual that we do have the ability to focus on the um, on the unum here. Mm-hmm. And Carl Rove had this really interesting piece about mm-hmm. two, three weeks ago, Wall Street Journal, saying we've been more divided. And no doubt the violence that he outlined in the 60s was was much worse than the kinds of stuff we've we've been going through. Um, and 70s. Late. And 70s. Way, act, I mean, absolutely. Back to the weatherman. What, yeah, speaking of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had in fact no idea that there was that much violence, and I think he, I, I think over a thousand in one year there were over one thousand bombings. bombings. Yeah. The book Days of Rage yeah, covers that Rage, right. era, and just remarkable what remarkable. what we don't remember about that. I mean, talking yeah. about memory, yeah. the the level of violence that we saw late sixties, seventies almost predominantly coming from the left across America yeah. was uh, is breathtaking. But there was something different going on, and I'm often wondering if we weren't a different country back then. Um, if you think about the Democratic Party in those days, for example, its leader at the time was a great war hero and proud American, the left of the left, George McGovern. Right. Uh, that is not today's Democratic Party. There were no socialists running for office. Gus Hall ran and got 25,000 votes. Today we have five self-proclaimed socialists in Congress and 100 throughout the state legislatures in this country. Um, we didn't have teachers that denigrated American history. The liberal professors of American history would have been people like Arthur Schlesinger. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. your Daniel Patrick Moynihan was your typical Democratic academic. 
boy, what I wouldn't do for that these days. I just don't know if we're the same country. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth noting as well that so much of the energy, if you will, around the divisions in the country in the 60s were around a war that had claimed 50,000 American lives. We don't have anything of that scope and scale today. And you do put your finger on um, really what I think is the main difference, which is the politicization of major civic institutions. I put education certainly in there, uh, certainly entertainment, um, whether we're talking Hollywood and the movies to uh, you know, streaming videos and what gets thrown around on social media. Um, there's been a dramatic ideological, uh, not even a shift, just an ideological imprint and influence, obviously coming mostly from the left, on those two uh, culture-shaping institutions. And now I would say, and I know you and I may disagree on this, I do think that COVID in many ways made a lot of Americans, millions of Americans aware of this reality, particularly in the education space, Uh, whether it's K-12 or where I operate in higher education. uh, I think we are actually seeing some uh, encouraging trends of American awareness, investment, engagement, whether it's running for school board or these new academic institutes that we're seeing launched at the University of Florida or the University of Texas that are standing for America's founding principles on America's college campuses. Uh, A lot of work to do, but I do see some encouraging trend lines, at least within education. But I'll... You're my guest, so I'm going to (laughs) gently... Because you're my guest. And I'll remind you of something I saw on your Twitter feed. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. What I'm going to what I'm going to gently push on is that while there is tremendous new energy at the new school and the University of Austin and obviously your school and a few others I'm wondering if we're not still now doing the pluribus thing though if we're not self-segregating in those things you know the great universities back in the day and maybe it's a myth but i think back in the day you know you would have the liberal and conservative and the crazy and the non-crazy all under one roof mm-hmm. and now i'm just wondering if our higher education isn't a little bit pete becoming fox and cnn so let me let me give you, you a couple data points analogy. absolutely yes. do when the university of austin which your listeners probably know is a new university that's being launched in austin texas uh from whole cloth committed to uh, Western Civ education, when they just announced that they were going to be launching without any website up noting that they were seeking resumes or, or CVs from faculty, within two weeks of their announcement, they had received over 5,000 CVs from faculty uh, from PhDs, many of them had given up on teaching in other Couldn't places. Take it anymore, huh? Right. Yeah. Um, but they they saw this, and not all of them were conservatives. Yeah, by that, the way, they had, had as much. They were Brett Weinstein's. Right. right. That right. was that was one of one of the things that's really happening in in higher education today. Is you're starting to see people on the left, and even some of the further those on the further left understanding that this squelching of differing opinions is is not good for them, and so. Uh, you're seeing the same thing now that some of these institutes like the new center, 
uh, the Hamilton Center at the University of Florida, this new institute at uh, University of uh, Tennessee and other places, they are being deluged by faculty uh, and those who have PhDs but had stepped away from academia and want to get in the game. I think there really is, uh, we'll see over the next few years, particularly in these red states, and you have an institute like that right here in the Phoenix Scottsdale area in Skettle. Under a lot of oppression, man. Right. And uh, But but it's it's proving but it, the point, you know, right? It's yeah. proving the point of the importance of something even this small yeah. in a massive you know, university like Arizona State University that Democratic legislators and those in uh, the Katie Hobbs administration would seek to squelch that just proves the point of the importance of having even these small institutes at these very large state institutions. And it's a trend line we're going to continue to see over the next five years. Well, this is why my friend Tevi Troy likes you so much. I can't. I, I, your, your optimism together doesn't uh, doesn't yield to my pessimism. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor said you have to push back as hard against the ages pushes against you and Tevi push against me on this stuff. I'll let you have the last word on this segment. We'll come back in another one and finish up with Pete Peterson. Such a delight having you here. We'll be right back. Welcome back uh, to the Seth Leibson Show. So great having you here, Pete Peterson. Oh, Seth. Love so it fun. having you here. So fun. I'm going to tee you up to close out the hour with a thought. Um, let me give you a quote from Leo Strauss, different Strauss than the one you were made. The reading of the morning prayer has been replaced by the reading of the morning paper. Not every day the same thing, the same reminder of man's absolute duty and exalted destiny, but every day something new with no reminder of duty and exalted destiny. You're in the business of training people to get involved in public policy. Would you put in a word for how important it is for people of faith and conviction to get involved in public policy? There are these every few years books about retreating. You and I are of the belief that that's the wrong response. Well, and I would just go to the impact that the events of 9-11 had on me which was this exploration of calling, which, as we talked about before, has both uh, secular origins and background, but certainly religious and specifically Christian origins. And frankly, for me, I thought the politics was really just a hobby until 9-11, and then it became very personal. And I'm sure that there are listeners out there or kids of your listeners or grandkids of your listeners that uh, it's important as people of faith— to think about what what we're called to do, not just as as hobbies, but also as professions. Now, I came out of the private sector. I was working in marketing and advertising and printing, and there are a lot of great people of faith that are working in that business, feel called to be in that business, and should be in that business. But we should also at least be open to the possibility that God is calling us into the public square in such a way that is more than a hobby, but is actually a profession, a vocation. And just being open to that, the next step is how do I best prepare myself for that? Because it does take preparation. Uh, There are skills that you need and background that you need, I think, to really succeed uh, and, and to perform within that calling. And so I just think being open to that, because sometimes I think as people of faith, as you say, there is there are some that are saying, let's withdraw. Mm-hmm. But boy, that's, 
I really don't think that's the example. Withdraws to surrender. Yeah. And um, we've seen what surrender does. Yeah. Uh, Nature, I think, like radicalism, like tyranny, loves – well, while nature abhors a vacuum, radicalism and tyranny loves it. Yeah. And we can't give them that vacuum. Right. I guess that's how I want to put it. Be salt and light, as you put it. That's it. Okay. That's it. Thanks for being here, Pete. Oh, so great to be here. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.